Hi, and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at the Strad. Violinist Gwendolyn Mason is an intrepid explorer of neglected violin works throughout history. In this episode, she shares with me three short pieces that she believes really should enjoy more time in the spotlight of staple repertoire. Here she is. Gwendolyn, welcome to the Strad Podcast. So you're here today to share with us and our listeners and followers the wonderful journey that you've been going on recently to uncover neglected works by sometimes unknown composers. Recent visitors to thestrad.com would have seen your online piece that you wrote for us about Podolsky, which was the pen name for Irina Vinyowska daughter of Vinyowski. And this is also to do with your recent album that you've released called Legends, an album of neglected works. So you're here to share with us three pieces for violin that you think people should know, that should be in staple repertoire. What's your first piece that you'd like to share with us? Well, I would love to talk to you about composition by Vitislava Kapralova. I'd also like to state for the record that whittling this down to three has been turmoil for me because there's a number of pieces that seem to be rare jewels and that are either completely unknown or have been very little recorded in recent years or have sort of ceased to be well known but might have been during their time. I came across this piece by Vitaslava Kapralova during an earlier foray into recording in 2018, I released an EP called Trois, which, much like the name would suggest, featured three pieces. Trust me, that was also a turmoil just to name the industry. <laughs> One of which was by Lily Boulanger, the younger sister of Nadia Boulanger. And this got the ball rolling on a whole kind of world of composers who may have been forgotten along the way or who have had very short lives. And... The reason I'm mentioning this is because Vitislava Kapralova shares a number of things in common with Lily Boulanger. The first is that they were both child prodigies. Vitislava Kapralova started studying and composing by the age of nine. Secondly, both of them were students of Nadia Boulanger. And thirdly, unfortunately, both of them had untimely deaths. They were both extremely, extraordinarily young when they died, in their 20s. In their 20s. That's right. That's very tragic. It's very tragic, particularly considering the fact that Nadia Boulanger stopped composing upon the death of her younger sister, more or less saying, what's the point of me composing when she had the feeling that the greatest talent in their family had passed away? One of the reasons why she has become such a famous pedagogue as opposed to a very famous composer. Both girls, Lily and Vitislava, had an extraordinary chance, which many women up until that time had not, which was to get a really solid education. Vinyavska, who you mentioned earlier on, Poldovsky, for example, really had to get her education wherever she could. Her father died when she was just a year old. So she wasn't entering the sort of hallowed halls of privilege where she could get in contact with great composers and great talent. And much the same can be said of Vitislava Kapralova. And it is depending on on what you think, a slightly less strong work than an amazing piece for cello and piano called Ritornelle, which is a really amazing, stunning piece, which if any cellists are listening, I warmly recommend you discover. It's one right here. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. There you go. Ritornelle, an amazing, fantastic piece. And Kapralova wrote her burlesque 
probably in 1932, although the date of publishing is 1933. She would have been around 17 years old by the time she would have written this piece. It's the only short piece of hers, providing the piano. All her other pieces are much more expensive. So she comes from a Czech background. She was born in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And one notices in her writing that the Ditonel, for example, is a little bit more experimental in feeling than her burlesque is. Her burlesque is an opus 36, her Ritonelle is actually written earlier. And all of the pieces I've chosen to share with you and Strad listeners are works that are more or less under five or six minutes long. So they would be perfect encore pieces for the end of a recital. They'd be perfect filler pieces. The three female composers we've spoken about so far all have in common. Poldovsky was the daughter of Henrik Vinyatsky, one of the most famous renowned violinists um, in our history. Lily Boulanger was the younger sister of Nadia Boulanger, who, and Nadia was very rigorous about the training of her younger sister. And Vitislava Kapralova was the daughter of the composer Vaclav Kapral, and her mom was a voice teacher. So all these children were born into very artistic and certainly musical families. And were all offered something that, for example, Fanny Mendelssohn did not have, which was the privilege of actually being published, of being taken seriously at all, or even being given the chance to appear under their own names. And what I find remarkable about the pieces that we've mentioned, be it Poldovsky and her tango, or the burlesque from Vitislava Kapalova, is how far in their signature they were. They had really figured out a language that makes the pieces instantly recognisable and distinctive to them. Despite the young age had already established quite a distinct musical fingerprint. Exactly, exactly. What sort of you know musical fingerprint does Kapralova exhibit in her work? She, along with studying with Boulanger, was also a student of Bohuslav Martinou, one of the big figures in Czech music history. And unlike Martineau, who was already pushing the envelope in certain aspects of his writing, Kapralova is actually, particularly considering that the burlesque is written when she's 17, she's really going out there. Much like Poldovsky's opening for her tango, she writes a piano solo. The work is written expressively for violin and piano, as opposed to violin and orchestra. And so there's no sense of reduction and there's no sense of minimization when playing these pieces. There's a fullness, a completeness. She shows a lightness beyond her years, a genuine sense of humor in her writing. She shows an understanding of the instrument. The piece itself is something that plays well in the hand. There are pieces written by outstanding composers where a violinist might struggle to find fingerings that suit the color or might struggle with tonalities. And in Kapralova's work, there is none of that. She also shows a lot of different kind of characters. The piece itself is an allegro giocoso, but also exhibits really cantabile places. And it's the sort of work that wouldn't need, unlike, for example, Poldovsky's tango, a person to practice for hours and hours and months and months on end. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of piece that, if one takes time for it, can be learned relatively quickly. Follows a clear structure is very playful, full of trills. I believe can be committed to memory quite quickly. To my understanding, although I've not played it live yet, I think this is the kind of piece that would receive a very positive response from an audience. That's a good incentive then, isn't it? That if something is sort of simple, easy to learn, as you say, easy to memorize, hasn't been done yet, then it should be done more often, I would say. Absolutely. I wouldn't say that it's easy. 
but I would say that it's the kind of piece that doesn't require hours and hours of practice. A person of intermediate state and level mm-hmm. could play this piece, if not something unreachable, which I think is also quite endearing about it. It's achievable. As you mentioned, you know, it sort of fits under the fingers. It's well written for the instrument. If it's idiomatic, then sure, it's not something you can pick up straight away, but it's something that is clear to understand how you'd go about learning it. It doesn't require too much unpleasant practice, hopefully. So Gwendolyn, what's the second piece that you think listeners should know about? What I noticed in exploring the pieces that are neglected or are not known is that in some cases it could be suggested that the background of the composers has had some impact on the popularity of these pieces. And I know that it's often said that a work that isn't known isn't known for a reason. And I think that we've come to a point in our history, in our collective history, where we can say that that statement is not always correct. A piece that isn't known or performed much is not necessarily less good than other pieces. It simply could have been that it's not discovered because it is written by somebody from a marginalized community. Mm-hmm. Another person I'd like to talk about, as well as the piece that I discovered, which is absolutely gorgeous, is by Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco. Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco was an Italian composer. He was a pianist and he was also a writer. And when I talk about a marginalized community, his biography reads that he's born at the end of the 19th century, around 1895, came from a community of Jewish people who were very proud of their roots. Because of the rise of anti-Semitism in Italy ahead of the Second World War, and thanks to another very well-known violinist, Yasha Heifetz, he was able to find exile in America. And like many composers who came from marginalized backgrounds, he landed in Hollywood. And mm. Castelnuovo Tedesco is, for example, for guitar players, a standard name. He wrote a lot of works for guitar. And he's also known in Hollywood circles because he must have written hundreds of compositions for Metro-Goldenmeyer film scores. And he also wrote for Heifetz. He wrote a concerto for Heifetz. He also wrote for Gregor Piotrgorsky. When he tried to, to get out of Italy because he could see that I mean, he was already being blacklisted, his works weren't being played, he was already in touch with Yasha Heifetz and also with uh, Toscanini, who at the time was the former music director of La Scala. And both of them responded with support. Casanova Tedesco, in the end, is known as an Italian-American composer. I came across a piece of his, which I think is really overlooked. It's a short work, under five minutes long, and it's called Ritmi, like rhythms. Mm -hmm. And it is actually subtitled Ritmo di Habanera, the feeling and rhythm of a habanera. Again, like the Poldowski tango, it starts with nearly an outcry on the piano, which is quite bewildering. It's quite a frantic, nearly hysterical sort of call to attention. Will certainly get everybody's attention in the room, but then suddenly languishes into something completely different, a very swaying melody, very habanero-esque. It's a piece that people can aspire to learning, and it's absolutely gorgeous. There's very few recordings of it. The only reason that I can come up with for it not being better known is because it's an early opus of his, because the works for which he is well known are on a much larger scale. And I have to admit, it has not been easy to find the music in the first place. The score that I'm looking at is one printed in Florence. 
in any case, I, I strongly and warmly recommend people to, to look into this gorgeous work written in the 1920s. This is written when he's still in Tuscany, in Italy, proud of his Jewish roots. He never tried to hide them. Unlike many Jewish families, he never went the route of converting to Catholicism. He also didn't while he was more or less being blacklisted by the government in his country. He never hid behind that, which is telling quite something about his character if one thinks about it. This is dedicated to Guido Gatti, who was a music critic, the founder of a piano journal. And this piece is quite intimate. And it's the sort of atmosphere changer, no matter what has been taking place before in a repertoire, in a concert, in a program. This piece does what Miles Davis does for his listeners. You know, it's the first notes already transport you to a completely different feeling of time and space. It's very generous, very warm and languid, a very sultry piece. Nice. You've mentioned female composers. You've mentioned a composer from a marginalized Jewish Italian background who then emigrated to America. And it just makes me think about, you know, the layers of privilege that, that a piece must have for it to be more well-known in the wider musical sphere. Just going back to what you said before about even though it's not known, doesn't mean it's not good. There are so many contributing factors of, of privilege. You know what I mean. <laughs> I, I absolutely know what you mean. And I, I have to say, the way that the world is changing at the moment, the way that people think is interesting. And yet the bubble of understanding and thinking within the classical music world, certainly amongst people who work as professionals, can sometimes feel a little bit like a bubble. Mm. As a classical musician, if you can be a professional and if you can earn your living from that, you already are in a state of privilege. You can do something you hopefully you love. You get yeah. paid to show up to work. You create or recreate gorgeous music, hopefully with people around you that you like. And that's such a beautiful and amazing blessing. And I feel particularly within our community as classical music lovers uh, in all shapes and sizes, whether we're professionals or amateurs or whether we used to play or are intending to play, mm. we would do well to be a little bit more critical of the pieces that are famous and the pieces that are played a lot and cast an eye on things we know less well and dare to go into those realms mm-hmm. rather than sort of beating things away with, oh, well, it's not known because it's never played, so it mustn't be any good. Because yeah. like you've said before, there are layers and layers and layers of privilege that we might not become aware of until we're interested in it, to understand that there's a wealth of music out there. But just because we haven't heard about it before doesn't mean it isn't any good. Yeah. Oh, you said that so much better than I did. Just because you've not heard of a piece doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Doesn't mean that's not good. So finally, what's your third piece in your very carefully whittled down list of unknown works? I came across an absolutely gorgeous piece, which is dedicated to a violinist from America called Helen Teschner Tass, who I must admit I had never heard of. The New York Times has critics about recitals she performed in it, dating back to the 1940s. And this violinist, who also performed in New York, was the dedicatee of a piece by a man called Lazar Saminsky. Now, Lazar Saminsky is a name that, as a violinist, I wasn't very familiar with before. And I stumbled across a recording of his Hebrew Rhapsody, which is an early work of his, his Opus 3, thanks to a recording by a friend of mine, Orshia Korshoyan. She's a Hungarian violinist, 
who is a pioneer of playing lesser-known works, which again I only realized when I stumbled across her recordings. And she has recorded a beautiful version of this Hebrew Rhapsody. Again, it's a short work. It's not scaling the heights of difficulty that one would say, oh my goodness, I can't get to this. In fact, of all the three pieces I've mentioned today, the Kapralava is by far the most difficult one. Lazar was born into a merchant family in Odessa, and he was a student of Rimsky-Korsakov, of Lyadov, and of Nikolai Cherepnin, which is another composer that Cherepnin and the dynasty of Cherepnin that we don't know very much of. He was a founding member of the Silk Society for Jewish Folk Music, which encompasses things that I'm also interested in, which is the impact of folk music on classical music, mm. and vice versa. He became this founder member of the Society of Jewish Folk Music together with a name that is probably going to be familiar, Michal Gnesin. You might be familiar with the Gnesin School of Music in Moscow. This Hebrew rhapsody of his is, is more or less unknown. I've scoured the internet and some library archives here, and I found two recordings. And amazingly, Heifetz was not one of them, because Heifetz is actually an incredible pioneer. If you look into Heifetz's life, one realizes that he really pioneered, like Oistrakh, a huge amount of composers of his time, and also commissioned a lot of composers of his time. And this Hebrew Rhapsody is originally scored for violin and piano. I wanted to find pieces that weren't transcriptions, that weren't arrangements. So this piece from Saminsky is absolutely beautiful, carries a lot of colours and tonalities that one might sort of associate with Hebrew song cycles or the so-called nigun, which is a cantillation that takes place in more religious circles. It's a piece worth discovering and a piece also worth teaching, and certainly it's worth listening to Orsha's version of this. You've come up with three pieces, each of them with really fascinating backgrounds and particular reasons why they are unknown. If people were interested in finding these works to perform, where could they find the works? The work from Kapralova is from a Prague-based publisher that was, and this is really interesting, speaking of privilege and women and repression and marginalised, it was... Printed originally in 1933 in Brno, yes, but it's only reprint thereafter. It's dated 2009. So that is really recent. And if you consider that there are many people who are not from the Czech Republic, and the fact that we know her outside of these realms, it's fascinating. So in the edition from 2009, it's a complete edition of all the compositions for violin and piano that she wrote in her lifetime. The burlesque being the shorted piece of all. So that should be easily available and certainly can be sourced via the internet. Mm-hmm. The work from Castanueva Tedesco, same thing. As far as I understand, that's an Italian edition. And the work from Seminsky, the version that I have is from or by Carl Fisher. And that comes as no surprise because like Castanueva Tedesco, Seminsky's life ended in America. He died in New York. So that piece actually is quite readily available. Gwendolyn, thank you for sharing these three really interesting, very unknown pieces with listeners today. And it's made me think that if one is always looking to uncover neglected works, then you'll never run out of music to play. So thank you so much. Thanks to you. That was Gwendolyn Mason. 
What you're hearing right now is Gwendolyn's recording of Podolsky's Tango, mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, which features on the album Legends, out now. If you're looking for something new to play, you'll find links to scores and Gwendolyn's recommended recordings of the three pieces in the show notes, as well as Gwendolyn's article on Podolsky that she wrote for the Strad online earlier this year. And don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.